Hello and welcome to another in our series of sponsor e-briefings here at the Cato Institute. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the director of multimedia here at Cato. Our topic today, of course, is Syria. But before we get to that, a few notes. We are hosting this briefing in the Roger and Elizabeth Hagen's Multimedia Center, a dedicated space for this kind of discussion. It also serves as a broadcast platform. Uh, to get our scholars' views out across the globe. These briefings are meant to give you, our supporters, exclusive access to Cato Policy Scholars and give you an update about the work that we're doing here at the Institute. You can send any feedback to me, Caleb Brown, cbrown at cato.org, and also Harrison Moore. His address is uh, on this website. Uh, these briefings are largely driven by your questions, so feel free to uh, post them into the chat room. Uh, no username or password is required. Uh, today we're talking with Chris Preble. He's the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He is the author of three books, including The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. And he co-edited with Jim Harper and Benjamin Friedman, Terrorizing Ourselves, Why U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It. In addition to his books, Preble has been published, uh, published more than 150 articles in major publications across the globe. And before joining Cato, he taught history at St. Cloud State University and Temple University. He was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and served on board the USS Ticonderoga. He holds a Ph.D. in history from Temple University. We're going to let Chris uh, make a few introductory remarks, and then we're going to get directly to your questions. So post them uh, whenever you like. Uh, Chris? Thank you, Caleb, and thanks to all the sponsors for joining in today, and thank you for your continued support of Cato. It, obviously, if, if it wasn't for, for your support, we couldn't do the work that we've been doing. Uh, we've obviously been quite busy in the foreign policy department uh, over the last month and a half or so on the question of Syria. Obviously, here in Washington today, the topic has moved to a different discussion. I think it's fair to say that very few people on Capitol Hill are thinking about Syria right now, and yet uh, that problem isn't going to go away. I just want to very quickly lay out a few uh, thoughts about Syria uh, uh, in terms of what happened over the last month and a half, what's likely to hap what's happening right now, and what I think is likely to happen in the future. Um, when uh, the first uh, reports of chemical weapons use by the Assad regime came out, of course there were uh, allegations in the spring, but the most serious incident was uh, in August. Uh, and I think most people believe that uh, Assad's government or forces loyal to him did, in fact, use chemical weapons, uh, kill perhaps uh, as many as 1,400 civilians. Um, when the president uh, first proposed the idea of U.S. intervention, uh, we raised a number of questions, myself, Ben Friedman, Doug Bondow, and others here at Cato. Uh, the question always is, what exactly is the compelling U.S. national interest at stake when we're, uh, when the president is asking to send troops into harm's way. Uh, is there a clear mission? Can the military accomplish that mission? Can we really solve the, the underlying problems? Um, and was there strong public support? We think that if we're going to send the military abroad, uh, there should be strong public support. Uh, in this case, in particular, there wasn't. There was overwhelming public opposition, stronger than I've ever seen. I've been here at Cato for 10 and a half years. Uh, and I think uh, that the president's decision, somewhat belatedly, to go to Congress really reflected just how wide the gap was between uh, the inside the Beltway crowd and folks on the outside. Obviously, the decision has been postponed because there are now U.N. inspectors on the ground in Syria, uh, a deal brokered with uh, the Russians uh, at the U.N. Uh, the question remains, can these inspectors uh, locate and destroy 
uh, a stockpile that's estimated to be about 1,000 tons of chemical agent. Uh, their timeline is very short, about mid-2014 is when they're supposed to complete this mission. And meanwhile, there is a civil war going on. Obviously, a civil war is raging. Uh, as many as 115,000 now killed is the estimate. Uh, and I think many people with experience in hunting down chemical weapons have pointed out this is going to be a, this would be a very difficult mission even if there was uh, not a war going on. So that complicates their tasks considerably. Uh, so going looking ahead, uh, we're certainly not out of the woods in terms of the the possibility of U.S. troops being sent to Syria. There will continue to be people, as there are even today, uh, calling for the United States to be much more heavily engaged, perhaps with uh, military. Uh, force. Uh, and then the question, the broader question beyond Syria is, have we established a new precedent or are we starting to see here in Washington a new precedent where the president will, in fact, uh, I would argue, obey the Constitution and go to Congress when, uh, when there is a proposal to use uh, U.S. military force? Uh, or is this a one-off? Is this simply a, a, a set of circumstances that is not likely to be repeated? And will President Obama kind of revert to the pattern of his predecessors, which is to send U.S. troops into harm's way and then effectively dare the Congress to cut off funding for troops in the field, which obviously is, uh, almost never happens. So uh, that's, that's what I'm looking at going forward, and happy to take your questions. Thanks again to all of you for joining in today. All right, we have a question here from John T. He says, if not in Syria, what is your criteria for when the U.S. should use military force? Thanks, John T. Uh, the, the answer is fairly straightforward. It's not really uh, uh, particularly unique to, to myself. I spelled this out in my book, The Power Problem, back in 2009. It's a modification of the Powell Doctrine, which we've done some videos and, and podcasts over the years about the Powell Doctrine. It, it's really four key components. One, uh, there should be a compelling U.S. national security interest at stake. Uh, we don't think there was in the case of Syria, and especially in the sense that the, the opposition groups that were most likely to prevail in Syria uh, were not likely to be friendly to the United States. We think there are serious problems with the opposition, and therefore uh, that's one of our concerns with, with U.S. military intervention. Uh, we do think there needs to be a clear military mission. Uh, there, there was not in this case. It's not clear what the U.S. military could do. It is, after all, a civil war, and picking sides in a civil war is a difficult prospect. Uh, and I mentioned strong public support. That's also a factor. And lastly, you know, the U.S. military is obviously capable of intervening uh, just about anywhere in the world at any time with no prior planning. That's one of the great strengths of our military, our, our power projection capabilities. Uh, and we shouldn't resort to those unless all of those other factors are in play and if we've exhausted all diplomatic means. As a practical matter, over the last 10 and a half years, that means that the intervention in Afghanistan after 9-11 was clearly, clearly met all of those criteria. Uh, I think we, uh, it, was, it was the right thing to do uh, to, to send in a small force there uh, and to overthrow the Taliban and drive the uh, al-Qaeda from its base camp. Uh, but even that mission evolved over time into a, a nation-building mission, which was never necessary to keep us safe from terrorism and uh, has grown even less so over the years. So uh, for me, uh, the, the use of the military should be restricted to those very rare cases when U.S. national security interests are clearly uh, imperiled and uh, when there are no other reasonable means for reducing the threat. Uh, perhaps we dare not dream, but uh, a Barack uh, has a question for you. He says, where is the line of constitutional authority for the president to use military force without congressional approval? 
Well, interestingly, Barack, uh, Barack Obama, as a senator in 2007, uh, laid out, I think, a pretty good standard, uh, one that Senator Rand Paul picked up on uh, when the Libyan uh, operation was being deba debated, and that is that if there is a clear and imminent threat to U.S. national security, then the president is clearly within his right to uh, respond to that threat or even in an anticipatory fashion preemptively and deal with the threat and then go to Congress and explain what was done and why. Uh, the fact is that most of the uses of the U.S. military in recent memory have not been to deal with a clear and imminent threat to U.S. national security, but instead have been to defend others from harm or to reduce the likelihood in the future that others would come to harm. Uh, that is the very different uh, standard between preemption uh, and prevention. And I think understand, for, for good reasons, uh, prevention is far less wise as a strategy uh, because uh, it is impossible to tell for certain when uh, what's going to happen in the future. It, um, uh, as Bismarck once said, uh, waging preventive war is like committing suicide for fear of death. Um, or more recently, I understand that Dwight Eisenhower once said, when asked, what do you think of preventive war, General Eisenhower? And, pre and General Eisenhower said, what are you preventing? Uh, so in, that's why I think the standard is clearly preemptive in, in response to a, an imminent or anticipating an imminent attack. And otherwise, you have the time and the con Constitution clearly stipulates that in all other cases, the Congress should be involved uh, as soon as possible uh, to, to before military operations are undertaken. All right, Chris asks, what is your assessment of the U.S.-Russia accord for Assad to uh, give up chemical weapons, and is there any evidence that the rebels may also con have some control over some of the chemical weapons stockpiles? Uh, thank you, Chris. I think ever since this war started, uh, the allegations have been flying around that the, some of the rebel groups would ha had possession of chemical weapons or would be inclined to use them. Uh, in part to visit the wrath of uh, Western governments or outside powers against the Assad regime. And I think uh, there is a distinct possibility that that is what has happened uh, in, in the past. But I think, and, and I can't say uh, for certain, uh, but, it, but the evidence suggests quite strongly that the chemical weapons attack on August 21st was uh, perpetrated by the uh, by the Saddam, by the Assad government, or uh, at least by elements who were loyal uh, to Assad and not by uh, the rebels. Now, it's possible that that's incorrect, but but we never know. Um, when you talk about chemical weapons, and my folk, when I talk about chemical weapons, I do worry about the control of those weapons, uh, who has possession of them, and I think the likelihood of that stockpile falling into the hands of people who would, frankly, be far more likely to use it uh, increases as the Assad government uh, grows weaker uh, and, and perhaps is, drawn, is driven from power. Um, the, the, the reality is that very few countries have chemical weapons and very few have ever used them because they're not particularly useful as a military weapon. Assad's government and his forces have managed to kill uh, tens of thousands of people with conventional weapons, bombs and bullets. Uh, on the other hand, chemical weapons, I think, are perhaps could be a particularly effective terror weapon, that is, a weapon used by terrorists, and therefore I, th I think that they have far, more, far greater incentive to want to get their hands on them than uh, Assad's government or other governments like his to actually use them. All right. Cliff asks a related question. Will one result of all of this be greater cooperation between the U.S. and, the, uh, and Russia? Uh, 
Thank you, Cliff, for the question. I I think it's too soon to say, and frankly, I, I should have mentioned this in response to it was Chris's question, right? Was it's too soon to say? Uh, I think it is encouraging. Uh, that there are UN inspectors on the ground. There were UN inspectors on the ground, of course, in August, but they were not. They were kept away from the site of the suspected chemical weapons use. Uh, this current mission that that uh, arrived in Syria basically two days ago, with a strong UN Security Council mandate, um, uh, presumably will have a better uh, better chance of actually finding the weapons and and destroying them or removing them. Uh, having said that, it's it's a tough task, as I tried to emphasize at the outset, is that there is a civil war going on. It's going to be very, very difficult to provide security to these weapons inspectors, uh, and, and it'll be hard to find these things because they're f- fairly easily hidden. Um, as for U.S.-Russia relations, there are so many different things, so many different moving parts in U.S.-Russian relations right now, and I think it'd be uh, particularly... Um, uh, unwise to invest a lot of hope in a, a, a strengthening or, or bettering of U.S.-Russia relations on the basis of this Syria deal. However, uh, if it proceeds and if it, uh, it allowed the United States to avoid becoming more deeply involved militarily, if it somehow managed to uh, drive a wedge perhaps between uh, Russia and their Syrian uh, sometimes Syrian ally, that would be to the good. Uh, but there are so many other things uh, in terms of U.S.-Russian relations. There's obviously the uh, nuclear arms uh, negotiations. There's the Edward Snowden affair. Uh, there is relations with uh, other countries in uh, Russia's immediate neighborhood. Uh, and, and so I think um, it, it's, it's only a small piece of a much bigger puzzle. All right. Bob asks, uh, would the vote for authorization of the use of force have passed in Congress? <laughs> Uh, that's a very good question, Bob. I um, right up until the last um, minute, right up until the time when it was clear the president was going to not ask for a vote or ask for a postponement of the vote, uh, I still believed that he would get the votes he needed, even though uh, there was such overwhelming public opposition, stronger than I've ever seen before. Uh, the fact remains that uh, while the Democratic, uh, ho- the House Democratic leadership. Uh, was was claiming that they weren't going to so so-called whip the vote, or that is, hold party uh, members accountable for the vote. Uh, officially, that may have been the case, but I think unofficially there would have been enormous pressure on uh, Democratic members of the House uh, to support the president, if for no other reason than they did not want they would not have wanted to undermine him politically. Um, on the other hand, there were a few Republicans who were strongly in favor of intervention, and I think most importantly Tom Cotton from Arkansas and Mike Pompeo from uh, Oklahoma wrote an uh, editorial uh, in the Washington Post calling on Republicans to support President Obama. And there is some cadre of Republicans who uh, wanted very much for this military operation to go forward. I think that is a small group, but I just don't know how small. And I think it would have been useful, frankly, to have had a vote, one of the first that we've seen, that would allow members to vote their conscience uh, and see how many Republicans would have gone along uh, supporting a very unpopular war because they believed that it was the right thing to do in spite of what their constituents were telling them. Uh, Unfortunately, we didn't get that test vote, and we might never get that test vote. We'll see. 
Uh, Robert A. asks a question. Uh, you'll forgive me if uh, I a little, find it a little hard to follow. Do you think the U.S. should get involved in Syria uh, and other foreign matters, maybe Syria on, on other right. foreign matters? Um, I think that the Syria case is, Robert, thank you for your question. I think this, the Syria case is very interesting because of how it is different from the Libya case. I was never a great fan of the Libyan intervention uh, back in the spring of 2011 either, uh, but it was at least possible to limit U.S. involvement in Libya. It was sanctioned formally by the U.N. and therefore had uh, some uh, international support. The U.S. military was not doing uh, all of the heavy lifting for the operation uh, and had some important allies in the fight. Uh, again, I don't think it was a mission worth fighting, but that, that said, uh, it, it, at least it had some uh, some international legitimacy and some uh, international support. In the case of the Syrian intervention, uh, especially after the British Parliament uh, turned aside uh, Prime Minister Cameron's request for the British to become involved, uh, the United States was truly going it alone in Syria. Uh, and the problem there is much more difficult. It is a much more protracted civil war. It reflects the deep uh, religious and ethnic sectarian differences that define the Syrian state, far more complicated than the, than the Libya case. And, a, and even in the case of Libya, if you go back and look now at what actually happened in Libya over the last two years, uh, it hardly stands out as a shining example of a successful intervention. Yes, it's true, Gaddafi was overthrown and ultimately killed, uh, but the Libyan state re remains uh, in an absolutely chaotic state. Uh, oil production is way down. Violence is rampant. Uh, and so it's, again, if we believe that our that the U.S. military's primary object is to defend the United States from security threats, and secondarily, perhaps, to try to solve uh, security problems, problems not just for us but for others, uh, it's very hard to see how that's actually happened in Libya, and I don't think it's likely to happen in Syria. So as a general proposition, I think that the use of the U.S. military should be limited to those very rare cases uh, when it is clearly advancing U.S. national security. And unfortunately, many of the missions that it has been assigned to accomplish over the years don't do that. Again, that's not the fault of the military. That's the fault of the people who assigned that task to the military in the first place. Uh, John asks, how well do sanctions work, and would they work in Syria? Uh, thank you, John, for that question. Um, I think it's fair to say that my interpretation of the effectiveness of sanctions has, has been evolving over time uh, uh, because before the last few years, sanctions had a very uneven track record. That is to say, there were very few instances in recent history where we could point to a government being discouraged or, or uh, to change course because of economic pressure. Uh, the case that people cite most often is, th is the case of the uh, South African apartheid government, which was under enormous economic pressure in the 1980s. But even that case is, an, is, is more complicated than suggested because most of the economic pressure came from private divestment movements and things like that, not uh, from uh, state-sanctioned sanctions, that is, the, the prohibition on trade uh, that came somewhat late. If you look at the other very long-term instances of U.S. economic sanctions against other countries, uh, those countries have not desisted from uh, their behavior or, or changed course. I'm thinking in particular of North Korea, Cuba, and Iran. Um, 
On the other hand, there was a story yesterday in, in uh, the, one of the lead stories in the New York Times yesterday about uh, the effect that sanctions are having on the Iranian economy. I think there is no question they are having an effect. They are making it, they have made it very hard for Iran to participate in the international economic system. They have uh, increased uh, just kind of the pain on the Iranian people. Uh, that, there's no question that that's happened, and it's partly a function of the sanctions. But it still hasn't uh, convinced the Iranian government to cease uranium enrichment and open up their uh, nuclear weapons program to outside inspections, which is the, which is the ostensible reason for the increasingly uh, harsh sanctions that have been posed on Iran over the years. So I think that I'm perhaps somewhat less skeptical of sanctions than I was perhaps seven or eight years ago, uh, but I still think on balance uh, they, they do not have a very strong track record. I should say, just as an aside, um, as a libertarian, as a person who believes in free trade and believes in people's ability, that people should have the ability to buy and sell goods uh, with, uh, with people that, you know, that, that advance their, their common interests, then when the government resorts to blocking those kinds of transactions, it should be for a very, very good reason. So those sorts of interferences in trade should be very, very rare. And, uh, and so therefore, just kind of from a perspective of individual liberty and personal freedom, uh, I also have some concerns about the use of sanctions to accomplish foreign policy objectives because I do worry that cutting off trade uh, is harmful uh, in the long term, both uh, to the people that you're trying to help and to ourselves. All right. Uh, Dan Hurwitz asks, uh, uh, what can be said about the difference between our estimate of Assad's inventory versus his declaration? <laughs> Thank you for the question, Dan. Um, that one is definitely a question I'm going to, have to say, well, we'll have to see, right, because we have not had on the ground in Syria a, um, an intrusive inspections regime that was specifically tasked with inventorying and ultimately destroying or removing that arsenal. Um, so I, that, that's a question I'd love to entertain that question six or eight months from now. Even then, of course, we may not know the answer uh, because these kinds of weapons are easily hidden uh, or, or can be, uh, and, and perhaps we'll never know. Uh, well, I'm going to ask a, a question here, and feel free to uh, continue to add your questions in uh, the chat room. Uh, with respect to uh, the ability of the president to make war uh, with or without uh, Congress's approval, uh, President Obama said, look, I can do this without Congress's approval, right. and then a moment later said, but I'm going to ask for Congress's approval. So right. even at, at the bottom line, if we view this as sort of a dodge, uh, given a very unpopular uh, intervention, isn't it still promising that the president <laughs> decided I'm going to go to Congress? Um, Caleb, it is a good question, and I've kind of tossed it around in my head many times. Uh, you know, of course— we don't know. We don't know what ultimately drove the president to, to this decision. Two years ago, when in the case of Libya, he said he had the authority he needed from the UN Security Council and therefore did not have to go to Congress. I think he didn't have that covered this time around, and so he was more alone. He was on shakier legal ground. I think the, the Libyan operation was also very shaky legally. 
uh, but, but leave that aside. He was alone there. He was alone in that the British government had a public debate in the House of Commons, and Cameron was defeated. This is, a, this is again, a rare instance in a parliamentary system. This uh, could result, you know, in other circumstances, because it result in the collapse of the government. So it's, it's rare that, a, that, that that kind of debate goes forward, and then the prime minister doesn't get his, his wishes. Um, so on the other hand, um, what, what I found most encouraging was not so much what the president decided to do, but what individual members of Congress decided to do. And uh, at the time when the president uh, decided to ask for congressional uh, approval, uh, 186 members of the House had signed at least one letter, and many had signed more than one, saying that he had to do that. He had to come to them. Now, some of them would have granted him the authority, but it was a principle that, they sh that he should come to them. Um, we did not see that kind of groundswell from members of Congress in the previous case, in the Libya case. I think it's a function of they, they perhaps learned some lessons in the Libya case, but more important was the response that they got from their constituents back home. They were, they were doing town hall meetings back in the districts, and they were just getting an earful on Syria all August long. It was just a, a drumbeat of opposition. Um, and so I'm encouraged because, because frankly, uh, as much as I'm critical of presidents for, for I think, misinterpreting the Constitution on, on the war powers, I'm also critical of members of Congress for effectively, uh, uh, you know, subbing out their responsibilities, their authority under the Constitution to the president. I think that's equally um, uh, improper. It'd be like the, it'd be like members of the House. Of, saying, well, we don't really believe we should have the taxing authority anymore. We'll give that to the president, too. It's clearly written into the Constitution that that's their responsibility. And so it's, it's been a kind of a pox on both houses that in the past, members of Congress have been too willing, I think, to concede this point to presidents and, and, and then evade responsibility. They can take credit when the intervention goes well, or they can blame the president when it goes poorly. And they, either way, they come out uh, with their hands clean. All right. Jack asks a related question. Why do you think Americans uh, have been so opposed to intervening in Syria? Uh, good question. Uh, I think that it was a combination of a general war weariness that has built over time, starting, of course, with the Afghanistan operation that has dragged on much longer than I think anyone expected. The Iraq operation, which was supposed to be, we were told, cheap and easy and was anything but the Libyan operation, which was decidedly a mixed bag, uh, and just so the combination, just kind of the, the accumulation of these various interventions that have had proven more difficult or at least less satisfying uh, than, than the advocates for the intervention, uh, that was a factor. The fiscal situation was a factor, even though I don't think anyone argued that the Syrian operation would necessarily cost a lot of money. There was the possibility that it could cost a lot of money. Of course, Iraq was supposed to be paid for by, by Iraqi oil revenues, one person said. So we've learned over the years to take uh, cost estimates with a grain of salt. Um, but I also think that the merits of the intervention itself, this particular case, uh, had a lot of problems. I think there that, and people opposed it for different reasons. So I think some people felt very strongly about the use of chemical weapons, but weren't convinced that a military intervention would make that problem worse and might even increase the danger to the world from the, from the leakage of those chemical weapons. 
Others were very concerned. There is no such thing as an impartial intervention in a civil war. If you're intervening in a civil war, you're taking sides. And I think a number of people had very serious concerns about the side on which we were intervening, that is the Syrian opposition, which was bitterly divided, and many factions within that opposition were uh, deeply um, uh, unfavorable toward the United States, to say the least. So I think that was a factor. Um, and, and I think just generally a, a sense that, you know, the U.S. military has been stressed to the breaking point over the years where, you know, the, its budget has basically been flat for the last couple of years, especially when you take out the cost of the wars. Um, and uh, I think there's a, there's a growing sense that if we're going to ask this military uh, to do something, that we should believe that it is essential to our security and that they can actually accomplish the mission. And I think there was considerable opposition, including from some uh, retired military or recently retired military that raised some serious questions. Even the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, Admiral, uh, General Dempsey, uh, raised some, I think, serious questions about the efficacy of the military uh, task that was being debated. Um, and, and for all of those reasons, I think that there was that, that much public opposition. Uh, Adrienne asks a related question. To what extent do you think the American people oppose Syrian intervention due to a lack of faith in uh, the military's ability to win a war. Uh, thank you, Adrian. I, I think that there is a there's two two parts to that question. Actually, I think there is understandably uh, a uh, a kind of new skepticism, or at least caution, when it comes to the use of the U.S. military in intervening in protracted civil wars, which is what we did in Iraq, what we effectively did in Afghanistan, are continuing to do, and what we were proposing to do in Syria. Um, that is not to say that people doubt the U.S. military's ability, I think, to defend this country from threats, to, uh, to perhaps defend our, our strongest allies from threats, to be able to act decisively in those instances for which it is trained and for which it has, has been built. Um, and so I think and, – and you got into a separate discussion about the credibility, so-called, of the U.S. Uh, military and the U.S. generally uh, around this question. I, I found those arguments particularly uh, unsatisfying precisely for that reason, is that I don't think anyone should doubt this president's or any president's willingness to use the U.S. military when – U.S. interests are clearly at stake. I don't think anyone should doubt that. I don't think anyone should doubt the American public's willingness to support those kinds of operations. But I think they should question when people are calling on the U.S. military to be used not in those instances. And I think uh, that's what happened here in Syria. Uh, Mark asks a question, will Iran view us as weak if we do not intervene in Syria? Uh, thanks, Mark. I don't think that's true. Uh, I already referenced the uh, no, I, I don't think Iran will, will believe us weak. I think that uh, that Iran is under enormous pressure right now from the economic sanctions I mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, and they're also under considerable diplomatic pressure from many uh, fronts, not just from the United States, of course. Uh, and meanwhile, the United States uh, uh, has engaged in major military operations to the east and to the west of Iran over the last 12 years. Uh, and I, I think it would be particularly uh, short-sighted for any Iranian uh, government, any Iranian regime, any Iranian leader to doubt the American military's ability and, as I've already said, the American people's willingness to deploy that military when we think there's a clear national interest at stake. Um, and so I think those issues are completely separable. 
Um, and, uh, and, and I think if you look at the response uh, just over the last couple of weeks, uh, both uh, Iranian President Rouhani and the, and the response, the diplomatic uh, moves that are going on, uh, that does not appear to me to be a, a sign of an Iran that is, that is weak. If anything, it's a, an Iran that is, that is under enormous pressure and trying desperately to, uh, to get out from underneath that pressure. All right, Michael asks a question. Given that other countries may support one side in a civil war, how do you see the U.S. reacting to other countries' involvement in a civil war? That's a good, who is that from, Mark? This is from uh, Mike. Michael. Michael, that's a good question, Michael. Um, I think that every civil war should be taken on its own terms. Uh, I, I think they're, they're very different. In the case of the Syrian civil war, they're uh, obviously uh, neighboring states that have very clear uh, security objectives in Syria, or I should say that the Syrian problem is imposing national security problems for them. I'm thinking particularly of Jordan and Turkey, which already are struggling under a refugee burden, uh, and that refugee burden has only become heavier as the Syrian civil war has raged on. Um, I think that there is, on the one hand, there's this, there is an impulse at some level for countries to want to become more deeply involved in, in the hope that they can, uh, can contain this violence. On the other hand, I think for the same reason that Americans were very skeptical and ultimately the U.S. government so far has resisted the impulse, uh, a sense that getting involved isn't necessarily going to make the thing better and might actually make it worse. So uh, I, I think there were some arguments that if the United States got more deeply involved in Syria, it would draw other countries into the conflict. I don't know that that's the case. That might not have been the case. Uh, we might have actually discouraged some of our allies from becoming more involved, which I think wouldn't necessarily have been a bad thing. They actually have a security challenge on their hands. Um, but I, I think that every country will make a decision whether or not to intervene in Libya on their own terms for their own reasons. And so far, uh, most, and fr frankly, all have resisted the impulse to intervene overtly. You have Hezbollah from Lebanon, who's been a little bit, has been more overt in supporting the Assad regime. You have other countries surreptitiously funneling arms in support to the, to the opposition, including the United States, of course. Uh, but, but most countries have resisted the impulse to intervene overtly, and I think partly because they worry about uh, whether other of their uh, adversaries would uh, then want to get involved in Syria and complicate their, their, prob their effort there. Uh, Warren asks, do you think that if the U.S. sent troops into Syria that would it, it would have further hurt relations with Russia and possibly kick off a much larger war? Uh, thanks for that question, Warren. I think there's always a concern about uh, that, not just with respect to Syria, but any time when uh, the United States is contemplating intervention in a country that has traditionally had close relations with Russia, how Russia reacts will, you know, obviously is a factor. In this particular case, I don't, I don't think that was the main argument against intervening militarily on the part of the United States. Um, it, it, it was probably a factor, but a, I think a, f a fairly minor one. Uh, you know, the fact remains that the, that the Russians, you know, Syria is not a terrific ally for the Russians when you really, you know, kind of figure it, figure it all out that what, what exactly did they bring to the table for the Russians? Uh, not much. They something of a headache. Uh, and so, uh, but, but I, I still think the reason, the main reason to, for not, the United States not to get involved is not because of how it would affect U.S.-Russian relations, but because, as I said, I don't think the, the military is, the U.S. military is being given a task that, uh, that it can easily accomplish or that will advance our security. 
Uh, a guest in our chat room asks, what about interventions when security interests of our allies are in peril? Uh, good question. Uh, I think, again, that depends on the circumstances. Uh, if you look at, we have security relationships with roughly uh, 55 countries or so. This is a, you know, that is formal security relationships where we declare that an attack on them is, is synonymous with an attack on all, like the NATO alliance or others like it. Um, uh, but even in, interestingly, even in those cases where we have a clear, uh, on, in the case of NATO, it's an Article Five commitment, uh, it is not necessarily a commitment to, to respond militarily. Uh, we are obligated under these treaties to intervene uh, in ways that uh, are consistent with our own interests and values, uh, and so even those are taken on a case-by-case -case basis, and I think that applies more generally. Uh, to uh, to when the U.S. is being asked to intervene on behalf of an ally. Um, I can certainly come up with a hypothetical scenario of where uh, particular U.S. military assets that are uniquely uh, suited for a particular conflict uh, and where that ally does not have those capabilities could prove decisive. Uh, but I'd also want some assurances that that ally had uh, made a good faith effort to defend themselves and their interests without relying over over uh, relying too much on the United States, which I worry many of our allies have done. Um, and so I think we always retain, we Americans always retain the discretion to intervene as we see fit, uh, even under security relationships that are formal and and ratified. Uh, and I think that we we shouldn't lose sight of that. Uh, Colin asks, would the quote-unquote clear use of military with congressional authority change the calculus of rogue nations that threaten or may threaten the United States? Colin, is that Colin? Uh, thanks, Colin. Um, well, I think rogue states or not rogue states, just any state that, that uh, decides one day that it would be a good idea to take a shot at the United States uh, would be uh, in making a very, a very bad calculation. Uh, I think that the United States has demonstrated repeatedly uh, our willingness to use uh, force to defend our vital interests. Uh, we have successfully deterred direct attacks by, the, by any nation state against the United States since, well, since Pearl Harbor. Uh, no nation state has been so foolish as to attack the United States directly. The few that have made the horrible miscalculation that they could provide aid and comfort to a terrorist organization that did the same suffered a horrible fate as well. The Taliban was driven from power in a matter of a few weeks in Afghanistan. Um, and so I think that our, the message that we send to any country in the world should be as clear today as it was 12 or 15 or 18 years ago, which is we possess the capability, a capability unmatched by any country in the world to respond to any attack. And that capability is what deters most nation states from attacking the United States, whether they're rogue states or democratic states or, you know, crazy on Tuesday states. They are deterred, and that is a good thing. Uh, and we should maintain a strong and capable military that is capable of of deterring those kinds of acts, and in the rare instances when deterrence fails, thankfully it hasn't, but if it did, then our ability for the, the, the ability of the U.S. military to visit 
um, uh, retaliation against that state should never be in question. It's not in question in my own mind, and it shouldn't be in question in any other country's mind. Uh, again, please go ahead and uh, ask any questions in the chat room. I'm going to ask a question about the John McCain's and Lindsey Graham's of the world who uh, they're are— just, They're just one of each, <laughs> thankfully. Well, but there, but, are, right, there, yes, there, there, yes, are, there yes, seem yes. to be many more. Yes. So the, the question is, with respect to their statements about U.S. credibility right. and uh, a, having this reluctance to go to war— uh, particularly in Syria and in other places where they would like to see the U.S. intervene. Uh, how credible is that claim? Just evaluate that claim. Look, U.S. Sure. credibility is on the line here. We need to do something. Right. Um, I think that the short answer is that Senator McCain and Senator Graham don't understand credibility very well, or they don't understand it as most people do, which is, as I've said repeatedly, the U.S. military is extraordinarily capable. The U.S., the American people, are willing to see that military used to advance our vital national security interests. When the American people are less willing to use that military in ways that do not advance our interests, it is not a reflection on our limited credibility. It's a reflection on the fact that that mission in question is not essential to U.S. security, and therefore we shouldn't have pledged to use the military in the first place. That is, if you make a foolish commitment, if you draw a red line that you're not prepared to defend or that the American people aren't prepared to defend, then that's not a knock on American credibility. That's a knock on the person who made the pledge in the first place. And I think we can separate those things. I will add that I was shocked and, and dismayed when some members of Congress, including Senators McCain and Graham, uh, suggested that any, in effect, that any pledge made by any U.S. president uh, obligated the members of Congress to, uh, to back up that commitment under any circumstance, because we could not possibly be in a situation where the President of the United States uh, could issue threats and then not uh, be confident that they'd be supported. No. Uh, on the contrary, uh, the founders were, spoke with a very clear voice on this, that it should not be in the business, it should not be in the capacity of a single man to involve ourselves, a single person, to involve ourselves in foreign conflicts. That's why uh, Congress has a vital role to play in foreign policy, in going to war. Uh, and and so it's precisely for the fact that occasionally presidents might make foolish commitments that we need a check on that power. We have checks and balances for a reason in this country. Uh, and I have been consistently uh, dismayed by uh, Senator McCain and Senator Graham's interpretation of their obligations under the Constitution to serve as a check on presidential power. My interpretation of their comments over the years, not just with respect to Syria, but generally, is that they do not believe that Congress is and should be a check on, on presidential power. All right. Tom asks, uh, given that Cato is a libertarian organization, are there specific libertarian principles as opposed to liberal or leftist ideas that apply directly to questions about U.S. involvement in places like Syria? Tom? Yes. That's a, thank you, Tom. That's a, that's a great question. And I, um, I think that there, there is not a libertarian approach to foreign policy per se. Uh, and I think I myself, I'm a libertarian, but I deal with these instances on a case-by-case -case basis. But uh, the reason why I think most libertarians are more skeptical of military intervention than, say, 
uh, liberal progressives or even some conservatives is because throughout human history, war has been the health of the state, the engine of the state, that when the federal government goes to war, when governments go to war, not just this government, it erodes the power of the individual, the authority of the individual, erodes human liberty, and, and, uh, and grows the power of the state. And we've seen this time and time and time again. I think that's why people like James Madison and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and others were so clear on this point uh, in the earliest days of the Republic, is they read Roman history, they read English history, and they knew what had happened uh, uh, under the pretense of fighting foreign threats and mobilizing militaries and things like that. And so that's why I think uh, there is a higher bar, a, a higher threshold for the use of force. That does not mean uh, that libertarians are opposed to all interventions. I'm not. I'm not a pacifist per se. I served in the military. And so I, but I do think you see as a practical matter that libertarians are, are less inclined to intervene uh, than uh, those on the on the left or the or the right. All right. Um, Warren asks uh, another question. Do you think the U.S. public trusts that the U.S. government is telling the truth <laughs> about Syria? There are a lot of conspiracy theories out there. Sure. And of course, our recent experience over the last decade or so uh, may have taught people to be less trustful. Right. Thank you, Warren. You're right. I mean, I think that because of the experience in Iraq, when there was clear. Uh, misleading information, if not, if not actual misinformation, uh, has caused many Americans to question what they're being told by the government. Of course, this is not, however, I shouldn't say, this is not an entirely new phenomenon. We saw a similar kind of crisis of confidence in government uh, in the waning days of Vietnam and, and Watergate. So, and you could even argue, of course, that there is a kind of a long tradition of, of uh, you, you know, questioning what the government tells us throughout American history. Um, what's interesting, I think, in the Syria case, however, is that when we asked, when people were asked, do you believe that Bashar Assad used chemical weapons against his own people, uh, most Americans said yes. They also said, we don't believe the U.S. should get involved in this way. So to me, it's not so much the credibility of the claims about whether Assad used chemical weapons, but rather, what can we do about it? And can we make the situation on the ground better? And I think that's a more important discussion, to be, to be frank, because we'll sort out the details. Uh, we will. I'm confident eventually we'll sort out the details about what happened uh, on August 21st and, and you know, where, where those weapons originated, et cetera. Th those details will get sorted out. But I think that understanding, there is a much better, frankly, understanding, a much clearer understanding of the limits of American military power today. And I think that's reflected in the fact that even if Americans believe that, that there were chemical weapons used, uh, they, they still were opposed to intervention there. All right. Uh, Tom asks, what are the overriding Syria issues that connect the U.S., present, and possible future relations with Iran and Israel? Um, Tom, is it? Yes. Uh, ask me that question again. Give me uh, that What again. are the overriding Syria issues that connect the U.S. present and possible future relations with Iran and Israel? Well, I think, to be frank, Tom, I, th I don't think that Syria is the main issue in either case, okay? I, I think in the case of U.S.-Iranian relations, the most important 
question is the, the Iranian nuclear program, the nuclear enrichment program, the future of that program, and, and will is there a possibility of the Iranian government accepting some kind of controls on that nuclear program in a way that satisfies concerns that they're not weaponizing? That, to me, is the most important thing. There are side issues that are also important, like uh, the involvement of uh, uh, Iranian Shiite militias in Iraq or in Afghanistan or other things, but I still think the fundamental issue in terms of U.S.-Iranian relations is the Iranian nuclear program. Um, in the case of U.S.-Israel relations, I also don't think that Syria is the most important uh, issue there. I think that, uh, that Iran is an important issue in U.S.-Israel relations, but I also think that um, that. Uh, that Israel's military capabilities in the region are uh, are, are quite considerable. Uh, their ability to defend themselves uh, really should not be uh, in question, uh, and therefore I think that the kinds of issues that that define U.S.-Israel uh, relations are not uh, so much about the potential uh, th threats from Syria. Again, I, I think you've seen ex examples of where the Israelis actually had a stronger hand in Syria, uh, given that the Assad regime was suddenly more focused on defending themselves against internal threats than they were from external threats. Uh, uh, not an entirely pleasant scenario for the Israelis, I understand, but uh, it's, it's at least a mixed bag. Let's put it that way. All right. Uh, Jeff asks, what is the makeup of the Syrian opposition, and can the U.S. work with them to build a democratic state? Um, Jeff? Yes. Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I wish I could tell you more about the uh, opposition. We published a paper uh, early in August uh, by Erica Borgart, which I highly recommend, which talks about uh, the prospects of the United States providing uh, military assistance to the Syrian opposition. Uh, again, this was before the, the latest allegations of chemical weapons use, before calls for the United States intervene directly. And in that paper, Erica spells out some of the details that are known about the Syrian opposition. Um, we know that some elements in that opposition are allied with al-Qaeda. Um, we know that some members of the opposition are secular and democratic. It appears that the secular Democrats are uh, considerably weaker within the Syrian opposition than uh, the more extreme uh, uh, and, and even, in some cases, the terrorist groups that are operating there. Uh, and so I think, in it, to be very blunt, I think the prospects for uh, a democratic uh, society emerging from the Syrian opposition are, uh, are, are uncertain at best. Uh, of course, we always would hope for that, and, and I think some have made the claim that if the United States were more heavily involved in the opposition, we could help further uh, the democratic opposition at the expense of the, uh, the, the undemocratic ones. Uh, I just have a lot less confidence in foreign powers' ability, abilities to pick and choose winners and losers in a civil war. This is not a knock against the United States. This is a knock against any country in history that has attempted to intervene in civil wars. It is a very difficult enterprise. Uh, and I think that even in our own experience, we've learned how hard it is to, uh, to guess correctly that the, the, the Democrats that we're supporting are Democrats and, two, can win. Uh, it, it doesn't often work out that way, unfortunately. 
another question. We've just got a few minutes left. If you want to drop one or two more questions into the chat room, uh, we'll be do our best to get to them. Is there anything we can say broadly about coalitions that form within <laughs> a country to then overthrow uh, a, a standing government? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, the short answer is I think, again, I think every country's situation is somewhat different. I think that in, in the case of Libya, for example, we now know a little bit more about the nature of the Libyan opposition, and that coalition came together uh, for different reasons, but it was far less fractious even than the Syrian opposition. In fact, uh, if you look at the Iraq case, there were, again, there were multiple factions fighting in Iraq, but less fractious than what was happening in Syria. I mean, the, the number of different groups uh, that are, uh, that we count as part of this uh, Assad opposition are so disparate uh, and, and strong in certain areas, certain, certain geographic areas, but very weak in others. So the notion of them forming a kind of national coalition government is a very, uh, yeah, very problematic. Um, so I, I, do, I do think that the, the Syria case is particularly difficult on many, many different levels, and that's one of the reasons why, is because just the internal dynamics of the political order in, in Syria are very, very uh, divided. All right. Well, I hate to do this, but unfortunately, my question is going to be uh, the last <laughs> one here today. Uh, before we leave you, I want to quickly note uh, Cato's webpage, downsizinggovernment.org. We are in the midst of uh, something of a government shutdown, although you would be surprised uh, how much traffic there is in the morning <laughs> and evenings uh, in Washington, D.C. during a government uh, shut down. Downsizinggovernment.org has many resources, much intellectual ammunition uh, regarding uh, the size and scope of government and uh, where the best areas are to cut. The Defense Department is uh, is featured there prominently. Uh, these sponsor events are held each month. We'll send you an email invitation as soon as we have details on the next one. And all of these events are archived on Cato's webpage. You can go uh, elsewhere on this page uh, to find uh, other archived e-briefings. Thanks again to Chris, uh, Evan Banks, Austin Bragg, uh, Kevin Sennett, uh, Blair Gwaltney, uh, Scott Morrison, uh, Harrison Moore, uh, Jenna Hune, and Leslie Albanese for helping to put this together. Uh, most importantly, thanks to all of you. Without your support, uh, this would none of this would be possible. As Cato sponsors, you make our work possible defending free markets, limited government, individual liberty, and peace. Uh, thank you again, and we'll talk to you again next time.